On a windy, brisk autumn night in 1995, doctors John and Mary Foreman were awakened by their dog's frenzied barking and a loud knocking at their fashionable home in an upscale Kansas City neighborhood. It was just after midnight when the foremans staggered to the door, struggling to wake up. They opened the door and were greeted with a hellish scene. The dark night was illuminated by flames coming from the house next door. Their neighbor, Dr. Deborah Green, was standing before them, wearing a nightgown. She was disheveled. Her hair was dripping wet. Call 111, she screamed. My house is on fire. My children are in there. The foreman's placed the call to 911. The flames were already leaping through the roof of their neighbor's house. Afraid that the wind would spread the fire to their home, they awakened their children and put them in the car and took them down the street. A lot of the neighbors were doing the same thing. Dr. Green's husband wasn't home, but Mary Foreman knew where he was. It was an open secret in the neighborhood that he was separated from his wife and involved with another woman. Mary called that woman's house. She asked to speak to Mike Farrar. Your house is on fire. There are fire trucks all over the street. Dr. Farrar jumped in his car and raced toward his house. When he arrived, he found his wife on the lawn, watching the house burn. His middle daughter was there with her, crying hysterically. My brother and sister are still in there, she kept screaming, begging the firefighters to rescue them. Her mother was standing by passively, not saying anything. Tears streaming down his face. Dr. Farrar grabbed his estranged wife by the shoulders and shook her. What have you done this time? he screamed. Indeed, what had she done? What led this woman, a doctor who had sworn years ago to do no harm, what had led her to set fire to her house and watch it burn while two of her children were inside? Who, what, was Dr. Deborah Green? Mix up a Peabody Sour and try to puzzle out the mystery of the doctor who swore to do no harm. Our tale begins in Havana, Illinois in 1951. Deborah Jones was the second of two daughters born to Joan and Bob Jones. She was extremely intelligent, teaching herself to read by the time she was only three years old. At school, she participated in numerous activities and was considered to be a very popular leader. She was a National Merit Scholar and was the co-valedictorian of her class. Her classmates pegged her for success. The sky was the limit, they felt, for Deborah Jones. 
She loved chemistry and enrolled in the University of Illinois, intending to be a chemical engineer. When she graduated, however, she felt that the field was going to be too crowded, so she changed her mind and enrolled in medical school at the University of Kansas. She and her longtime boyfriend, an engineer named Dwayne Green, married in 1974. It didn't work out. By 1978, she and Duane had separated and later divorced. While she was separated, she met a fellow student at the University of Kansas, Michael Farrar. He was three years younger than her, but he seemed smitten by her intelligence and her vitality. He was more withdrawn than she, and sometimes he was embarrassed by her public displays of temper but she seemed to appreciate his more laid-back, steady demeanor. Despite Mike's reservations, the couple married in 1979. He was accepted into a residency program at the University of Cincinnati, and the couple moved to Ohio. When they arrived, Deborah took a job as an emergency room physician, but decided that it just wasn't for her. Soon, she quit her job and applied for a residency in internal medicine the same residence program that her husband was enrolled in. During their time in Ohio, Deborah began experiencing health problems. She had surgery for an infected wrist. She developed migraines and insomnia and was in chronic pain. Soon, she switched specialties again to hematology and oncology. In 1982, their son Tim was born followed by a daughter, Kate, two years later. When Mike finished his cardiology fellowship, they moved back to Kansas City and they both joined established practices. Soon, though, she moved on again. She left and opened her own practice. It was successful for a time being, but then she found herself pregnant with her third child and she took maternity leave. When she resumed her practice, it failed and the marriage was showing signs of strain. Deborah complained that her husband was never home, that he didn't show any interest in their children or in her. He complained that she was sometimes neglectful of the kids and that the house was always a mess. She said that he pressured her into giving up her dream of medicine to become a full-time homemaker. He said that she was self-medicating with narcotics and alcohol. He also accused her of using the older children as a sounding board, that she would complain to them about the most intimate aspects of their marriage, turning them against him. By 1994, Mike had moved out and asked for a divorce. They eventually reconciled and decided to try to start over. They put down a contract to buy a large, expansive six-bedroom house in Prairie Village, Kansas, an affluent Kansas City suburb. But at the last minute, Mike got cold feet and backed down of the sale. He said he was worried about the debt, and he also just wasn't sure about the future of the marriage. Then, one night, while no one was home, the family home in Missouri caught fire. The house could have been repaired, but the couple decided to leave, and they decided to try one more time. So they renegotiated the purchase of that home in Prairie Village, 
and they moved in. For a few months, things seemed to be back on track. But by the next summer, June of 1995, the marriage had deteriorated again, and Mike decided to file for divorce. The family had already scheduled a trip to Peru. It was sponsored by the school where their older children attended. So off they went. While on this trip, he met a mother of a fellow student. They seemed to have a lot in common, and eventually their friendship blossomed into an affair. When they got home, Mike told Deborah that he was filing for divorce. She became hysterical, throwing things at him, calling him names, gathered the children and told them that their father was leaving them. Even though he had told her he wanted a divorce, Mike refused to move out of the family home. He was concerned with Deborah's drinking and her care of the children. He said that on more than one occasion, he would come home and find her unconscious. One day, while the children were home, he came home looking for her and couldn't find her anywhere. He scoured the neighborhood, thinking perhaps she had walked away in a drunken stupor. It turned out that she was actually hiding in the basement. Mike told her that the neighbors were beginning to talk, that they were aware of her drinking, and they told her that he told her that if she didn't stop, some of the neighbors had told him that they intended to call social services because they were so concerned about the children's welfare. Deborah was concerned that Mike might try to gain custody of the children in the divorce. At one point, she said, you'll get the kids over their dead bodies. So when the fire was finally extinguished at about 1.30 a.m., the police escorted both Mike and Deborah and their 10-year-old daughter to the police station and questioned them separately. The versions differed in several critical respects. Deborah had said it started out as a normal day. The kids did their chores, and then Mike came by the house and picked up Tim and Kelly and took them to a hockey game, while Deborah took Kate to ballet. By 9 p.m., the kids were home, and Mike had left, and Deborah said that she'd had one or two drinks and went to bed and fell asleep by 11.30. She also said that she had paged her husband and had talked to him sometime before that. She couldn't remember if it was 10 or 10.30 or 11. At midnight, she said, the fire alarm went off. She initially thought it was a burglar alarm and got up and tried to shut it off at a panel located in her bedroom. When that didn't work, she opened the bedroom door. The hallway was filled with smoke. She ran outside. She ran to the deck, went down the deck, and ran around to the front yard. She looked up, and she saw flames leaping through the roof, and she saw her daughter Kate running along the roof. She yelled at her to jump and that she would catch her. Kate hesitated for a second, then threw her arms above her head and jumped. Deborah didn't catch her. Fortunately, the leaves had, had fallen, and Kate landed in a pile of leaves and, and was uninjured, and she jumped up. Deborah also said that as she was leaving the house, she heard Tim on the intercom from his upstairs bedroom. He was asking her what he should do. Should he leave? Should he get his sisters? She told him just to stay there until the firefighters came and rescued them. 
While she was telling this story, the police were mystified. She appeared very talkative, almost cheerful. And whenever she talked about Tim and Kelly, she didn't call them my name. She just referred to them as my 13-year-old son or gave the age of her daughter. She also talked about them in the past tense. At 5.20, the house had cooled off enough and the firefighters were finally able to enter. At around 5.20, they found the children's bodies. Kelly was still in her bed, blankets pulled down around her waist. She had died of smoke inhalation. They found Tim on the bottom floor, badly burned. They believe that his bed finally just fell through the, the burned floor. Mike was interviewed next, and he had some surprising information for the detectives. He told them about his health issues over the past six months. Nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. At first, he thought it was something that he had contracted in Peru. He'd been to doctors several times, and and no one could tell him exactly what was wrong. His girlfriend was convinced that his wife, Deborah, had been trying to poison him. He laughed it off. But one day, he looked in her purse, and he found a package of castor beans. This was strange, he thought. Deborah had never shown any interest in gardening, but here they were. He did research, and he found that the core of a castor bean is covered with a very hard coating. When that coating is removed and the core is ground into a powder, it produces ricin, a deadly poison for which there is no antidote. He remembered that whenever he would get sick and go to the doctor and come home, Deborah would have a meal prepared for him. He'd always get sick again. He confronted her about the castor beans, and she eventually told him that, yes, she had them. Yes, she knew they were poison, and that she had them because she had planned to kill herself. He tried to get her to seek counseling. Initially, she refused, but finally, she voluntarily committed herself to the Menninger Clinic in Topeka, Kansas, a very well-known psychiatric facility. She was only there a few days, but she was diagnosed with major bipolar depression with suicidal impulses. The doctors prescribed Prozac, Transine, and Clonipin. The day after the fire, the authorities investigated the ruins of the house. They brought in a dog who was able to sniff accelerants. The dog's name was Avon. And Avon almost immediately found poor patterns of some accelerant. They're not sure what it was. It wasn't gasoline. But the poor patterns were all over the downstairs and the upstairs bedrooms of the house. That was enough. They reported to the police and prosecutors that the fire had been deliberately set. The police examined both Mike and Deborah. They looked at their clothing, looking to see if it had been burned or had any traces of an accelerant. Neither did. But they also looked at the hair. Mike's hair showed no traces, no singeing. But Deborah's did. Her hair had been singed, which would happen if someone dropped a match or a, a lighter in an accelerant as it exploded up. It singed her hair. Police believe that shortly after she lit the fire, she jumped in the shower. That's why her hair was wet when she arrived at the foreman's house. During the search, the police also discovered receipts from castor beans from a local garden center store. They interviewed the clerk, and he was able to remember the person who bought them. It was fairly easy because the beans were out of season. His description matched Deborah Green. She told him that she needed them for her son's schoolwork. Deborah had retained attorneys, and they had asked 
the um, prosecutor and the police to notify them if they plan to make an arrest and that they would surrender Deborah voluntarily. Based on her erratic behavior, the police weren't interested in that. They felt they needed to arrest her. And so one day she was in Kansas City, Missouri, dropping her daughter off for ballet practice. She found her car surrounded and she was arrested by Kansas City, Missouri police. She was returned to Kansas and charged with two counts of first degree murder and one count of attempted murder. Her bond was set at $3 million, the highest ever in Johnson County, Kansas. The court held a preliminary hearing in January of 1996. The state presented all of its evidence, the castor beans, the singed hair, the statements made by Deborah Green, the inconsistencies regarding time and location. And then the defense attorneys presented their theory of the case. They stated that it wasn't Deborah who burned the house down. It was Tim, her dead son. They believed that he was very angry at his father for leaving his wife, and they found testimony that Tim had, in fact, played with fire before and that he and his father had actually come to blows. They also told the judge that they believed Tim Farrar had poisoned his father because he did a lot of the cooking when his mother was incapacitated due to alcohol. The judge didn't buy it. He ordered Deborah to stand trial for murder and attempted murder. The state announced that it would seek the death penalty, and the trial was set for that summer. The defense had hired some expert witnesses to try to shoot holes in the prosecution's case, but it backfired. During their investigation, they discovered that Deborah's robe, partially burned robe, had actually been found on the floor of the bedroom, and that it had been burned in such a manner that showed she was wearing it when the fire had been set. When her attorneys confronted her with this fact, she admitted that she had set the fire, but she hadn't intended to kill her children. Her attorneys contacted the prosecutor and said that their client was interested in a plea bargain. In exchange for sparing her the death penalty, she would receive the maximum penalty called the hard 40, 40 years in prison with no chance of parole. She is due to be released in 2035. She will be 84 years old. Since that time, she has tried three times to withdraw her plea or have her sentence reduced. Her motions have been denied each time. Mike Farrar eventually had to have 11 surgeries due to the rise in poisoning, including brain surgery and open-heart surgery. He finally recovered. His relationship with his girlfriend didn't last, but he eventually married a local attorney. He is still a practicing cardiologist in Kansas City. Katie was raised by her grandparents. She eventually married, and she still lives in Kansas City as well. She remains in contact and on good terms with both her parents. She believes that her mother is innocent. Thank you, Dad. That is a wild story. And especially that it is so close to where we are sitting right now. It makes it even crazier. Mm-hmm. You were just telling me that you remember this like it was yesterday. Yes, it was a, it was a huge deal. Um, you know, 
rich doctors, the affair, the poisoning. Uh, this this stayed in the headlines, you know, for over a year. It happened, I guess, at the end of October, and it was finally she finally pled guilty in April. So th- this was on the news just constantly, and in fact, it still shows up on the news. She has Deborah has tried three times to either have her plea withdrawn or she's alleged constitutional errors. The last one was, I think, in 2015, so six years ago, tried to get out, and uh, the court denied that motion. So I wouldn't be surprised if she tries one more time for some reason. Maybe, maybe she'll say she's afraid of catching COVID in prison and has to be released. Who knows? Right. She's only, she's 70 now, I think, and that's the new 55, so she's not. But in prison, that kind of ages you more. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are pictures of her, recent mugshots. I'm sure you'll post those on the website. Mm-hmm. Sure will. Well, we'll get back into discussing a few more things uh, in a minute. But first, we have our Trends of the Crime section. This is the part of our show where I talk about some sort of fashion that was in vogue at the time of the crime. Our editor, our genius editor, Don Bailey, gave us this genius idea, you know, because I have sort of covered the fashion of every decade so far. So season three, we are going to try something a little different. And I am going to choose one aspect of each case and go over the fashion of that piece. And because this is a case about a couple of doctors who were married, I wanted to learn and do a deep dive on the history of scrubs. So here we go. Here's what I found. All right. Pretty fascinating, by the way. In the early 1900s, surgeries occurred in an operating theater. Unlike nurses, surgeons wore their own clothes with a butcher's apron well into the 20th century. They wore a white butcher's apron because a surgeon's success was usually measured by the amount of bloody stains on that apron. And the bloody stains came from working with their bare hands using non-sterile instruments. You know what I'm picturing is ratchet. Mm-hmm. We've brought that up. I've brought that up like three times on the show. So good. But that's what I'm picturing is all the nurses watching the lobotomies. Eee! Gross. <laughs> Scrubs became popular in the 1970s because they were easier to clean and more hygienic. So they finally wanted to, you know, be clean. That's nice. The first surgical scrubs were white to emphasize this new standard of cleanliness. However, the bright operating lights in this all-white environment caused eye strain. So by the 1960s, most hospitals had switched to shades of green to provide visual contrast and make stains appear less obvious. So, you know, by the 60s, people were like, the blood's kind of gross, so let's maybe tone it down. The green scrubs were originally called surgical greens, but were changed to be called scrubs because they were worn primarily in a scrubbed or sterile environment. And that's the history of scrubs. Now, I don't, you've probably seen me. I've got a pair of scrubs that sometimes I wear around the house in the winter. Mm -hmm. Uh, When your sister was born, uh, I was, of course, in in the operating room or in the birth room, like any good husband, and uh, they gave me scrubs to wear. And then they said I could take them home. So I I still have my greens that I occasionally wear. Are they really as comfortable as everyone says? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's loose fitting. It's kind of everything's. <laughs> yeah. Great. Yeah. Uh, I'll get to that in a minute. 
wearing scrubs, you know, just around the house. Uh, but the current use of scrubs is the following. Um, it's forbidden to wear any exposed clothing underneath scrubs in many operating rooms. Because scrubs are designed to promote a clean environment, the wearing of outside clothing is thought to introduce unwanted pathogens. Makes sense. Nearly all patient personnel at hospitals in the U.S. wear some form of scrubs while on duty, as do some staffers in doctor, dental, and veterinary offices. Doctors in the U.S. may wear their own clothes underneath a white coat except for surgery. They have to wear scrubs in surgery. Scrubs are also sometimes used as prison uniforms in the U.S. and other countries. Those orange jumpsuits are usually scrubs. Scrubs are becoming more common in other industries due to the COVID-19 pandemic as well. Non-traditional industries using scrubs include workout facilities, schools, and restaurants. And this is, again, because they are easy to clean and more hygienic. And we don't want that COVID around here. No. Now, did you do any research on the white coats that doctors wear? I thought about it, but I did not because I didn't want to take an hour. Well, I just, I, I I did, I was looking up something. The title of this episode is Do No Harm, which at some medical schools, that's one of the oaths you take, do no mm. harm. And evidently, when you start medical school at some point early in your career, they have a white coat ceremony where you are given a white doctor's coat and you recite the oaths. So uh, I just wondered if you knew anything about when they wore that white coat. When they're doing rounds or or what? I don't know. Well, let I, may, we have a few doctors who listen to us. Maybe they'll tell us. Yes, and I, you know, maybe I'll reach out to them before this goes live and put it on our social media too. All right. Um, and this whole research of scrubs made me want to watch Doctor Death on Peacock, which came from a Wondery podcast. If you haven't listened to it, you definitely should. And now they've made a show with. Oh, one of the dreamiest men, I think his name is Joshua Jackson in real life. He is Pacey from Dawson's Creek. So handsome. Anyway, he is a surgeon who does a lot of malpractice and stuff. Mm. And they really uh, focus on the fact that during surgery, he has a hole in his scrubs and he wears those scrubs multiple times. So he's doing it wrong. So you said he does a lot of malpractice. You mean he commits malpractice? Correct. Oh, he commits okay. Mal- I didn't know what the correct way okay. to say that. He commits malpractice, but I don't know yet if he's doing it on purpose or because he just doesn't know what he's doing. Well, keep us posted on that one. I will. Spoiler. I won't spoil. Um. Anyway, modern scrubs are now a thing. They're not all, you know, the really cute green that dad has. Just kidding. I don't think they're that cute. Um, But now they have, you know, you can see the cartoon characters and all that stuff. Or if you want to get really stylish, there's a place called Figs online that sells like really cute scrubs. And people just buy scrubs from Figs to wear Mm. around the house Mm. because they have joggers and they're cute. So scrubs have really come a long way. Well, I have another question for you, and I don't know if you looked at this at all, but you mentioned Ratchet. Mm-hmm. And of course, back in the 50s and 60s, when that was set, we all know what the nurses looked like. They had on the white dresses, the white stockings, the white shoes, and that little nurse's cap. Mm-hmm. Um, when did they stop wearing that? Do you know? Because now nurses are in scrubs too, right? Right. 
nurses are in scrubs. If I were to guess, I would say in the 70s and 80s when the scrubs became more popular. I would guess that the surgeons and surgeons started wearing them in the 60s and then maybe, you know, the 70s is when women really started to wear a lot of pants and I would guess it would be in the 70s, but that could be very wrong. I don't know. And I guess there's one other thing I have to mention for all the old guys out there like myself. We may have a few listening. Uh, back in the 60s, every young man's fantasy was a candy striper. Have you ever heard of a candy striper? Yes, but I don't know what it is. Well, those would be high school girls who volunteered in hospitals. Uh, and they would like wear, in Ratchet. Yes, and they would wear those little striped, mm. pink and white striped uniforms. Okay. So, I didn't look up anything about too that. Bad, too bad those days are gone. Too bad. <laughs> Scrubs have come a long way, and it's clear that, you know, the dress and fashion with doctors is very different now and was different by the time that this case happened. So let's talk more about this case. But first, I want to know about the cocktail this week, why you chose it, what it is, what it's like. Well, I couldn't really think of a themed cocktail that wouldn't be in pretty bad taste in a in a fire with with dead children. So I decided just to celebrate uh, season three. I was going to make a cocktail that I know is one of your favorites and is one of my favorites. Really has nothing to do with the case, but it is excellent. It is the Peabody Sour. It is a whiskey sour. It's going to have some lemon juice, peach juice uh, from real white peaches and uh, some simple syrup to sweeten it up a little bit. And of course, uh, some Jack Daniels Tennessee whiskey, because the Peabody Sour is from the Peabody Hotel, which is a famous hotel in Memphis. If any of you have been there, you know that it's known as the Duck Hotel. That's where twice a day, uh, ducks get on an elevator and they, in the morning, they come down the elevator, waddle across a red carpet get in the uh, the fountain on the bottom floor in the bar and just swim around. And then in the afternoon, uh, somebody in a tux comes and leads them back on the red carpet into the elevator and back up to their penthouse suite. So the Peabody Sour is their signature cocktail. And um, I've loved it ever since I first had one. So we're going to have the Peabody Sour today. And it is excellent. We just drank some on Sunday and I'm about to have another one. When we do our video. Indeed, we both are. <laughs> yep. Well, what about the setting of this crime? Tell us about Prairie Village, Kansas. Sounds like just a little hick place. I'm thinking a little house, a little on, the house on the prairie. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so th this must be just a little hick spot on the map somewhere. Nope. It definitely is not. Prairie Village is an affluent suburb in Kansas City on the Kansas side, and it's on the way to the plaza. So it's right on the edge of the Kansas state line, I would say. It's got stores that are expensive that don't need to be that expensive, but are just because they can be. Um, it's very cute and very white, to be honest. 95% mm -hmm. of the people who live in Prairie Village are white. Um, the population is pretty small, but that's because it's so intermingled with all these other suburbs, like Overland Park is basically the same leads right into it, Leewood, all of that. Population is 22,170. 
The median age is 41.4 years, and the median household income is 91136 and that was in 2019, which that seemed a little low to me for household income in that area. Does it to you? Well, I'm sure you have. I mean, not all of Prairie Village is, is affluent. They have right. some middle-class houses. So, uh, no, I don't think that's low. I thought it was pretty high, really. I guess for median, yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's not average. Right. So. so, yeah, Prairie Village is, is very nice. And they had a pretty big house in Prairie Village. And they barely lived there. Mm-hmm. It was right. like less than a year, wasn't it? Right. Unless something has happened in the last six months or so, that that house, uh, where that house stood, is still just a vacant lot. Oh wow! <gasps> Maybe I'll drive by there this weekend and see if it's uh, see if they've built anything on it. I wonder if they haven't. Maybe it's not being sold on purpose because I know sometimes when horrible things happen like that, mm-hmm. and like children die, like mm-hmm. people don't even want to build on top of it. Could be, yeah. yeah. You mentioned wanting to talk about if Deborah actually did this. Mm-hmm. I think yes, obviously. What yeah, do I, I don't think there's any question. I know that that her attorneys, and I know I know both these guys. Uh, they, it was the cream of the legal community uh, back in in uh, 1995. Her representation, um, Dennis Moore, was a former district attorney. He resigned to run for attorney general of Kansas and lost, and then uh, won election as a congressman and, and served several terms as, as a congressman from our uh, third congressional district. Uh, the other attorney was Kevin Moriarty, who later became chief judge. So these were not ambulance chasers, but they caught a lot of flack uh, because they they tried to pin this on the dead on the dead son. Uh, no, no real evidence to do it, but you know you're trying to save somebody from uh, uh, from lethal injection. You you play the hand you're dealt. No, I don't think there's any question she did this. She admitted it. She admitted she set the fire. She just said, "I," but I didn't mean to kill the kids. But some of the statements she made. I mean, why why would you? First of all, you know your kids are in the house. Why wouldn't you just? grab the phone on the bedside table and call 911 yourself. Instead, she runs next door and says, call 111. Not sure if that means anything, but I mean, why not call 911? She had time to jump in the shower. She (laughs) had time to try to turn off an alarm. Uh, And the fact that she told her son to stay in the house, when she sees when, when another daughter is running alongside the roof, hopping over flames, why wouldn't you tell your son, get out of there? I mean, I, I guess I just have to believe, yeah, she knew what she was doing and, and it was intentional. And the one little girl, she's darn lucky she, she she found that window and got out on the roof. I think she intended to kill all three of them. Personally. I do too. I, I think that she was, and I'm sure still is, a very sick person, mentally ill person. and. It didn't help that her husband wanted a divorce and she was using her kids as a pawn and was like, you have the audacity to leave me. Well, look what I'm going to do. I'm going to take everything away from you. And I think she meant to kill all of her kids to get back at her husband. I agree. I agree. And it's we, awful. We, we hear about this. It seems like once a year somewhere in this country, 
some parent, sometimes the dad, sometimes the mom, in a bitter divorce case, uh, it's not enough to get custody of the kids. We're just we're gonna we're gonna kill them so you can't have them at all. Yeah, it becomes a instead of thinking what's best for the kids, it's I hate you and I want to make you suffer. Yeah, just terribly sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I I definitely think that she did it, and um, in the I I watched the forensic files episode that this case was on. It was uh featured on and they also said someone on there said that the kids were the ultimate pawn in the case and the ultimate um victims in the case Mm -hmm. as well yeah very sad yeah let's talk about the or did you have anything more with that no are you gonna are you gonna talk about the poison here yes i want to talk about how mike got poisoned and the poison specifically yeah, that 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 was terribly interesting to me. I mm-hmm. I don't think I'd ever heard of ricin before. I probably did during the the news reports of this case, you know, 25 30 years ago, but um I I just wasn't familiar with it. So please go ahead. Yeah, and I've heard the word ricin, but I never really knew what it was. So uh this information is from the CDC, so it's legit. Ricin is a poison found naturally in castor beans. If castor beans are chewed and swallowed, the released ricin can cause injury. Ricin can be made from the waste material left over from processing castor beans. And I think castor beans are, like I'm picturing people use them for crafts. Is that how you picture them? Like I think I've used them to like glue on like a project in art class. Yeah, it could be. Could be. I, I like I said. I don't. I don't recall ever hearing what a castor bean was. Mm-hmm. I just I looked saw, up a picture. Yeah. I saw the picture, and it looks like something you'd use mm-hmm. to decorate with. Yeah, and that's what she said they were for to the guy in the mm-hmm. in the at the store. So, um, it can be so ricin can be in the form of a powder, a mist, or a pellet, or it can be dissolved in water or weak acid. It is a stable substance under normal conditions, but can be inactivated by heat above 176 degrees. <laughs> so you can be affected by ricin in three different ways: by inhaling it, ingesting it, or through skin and eye exposure. And here are the symptoms of each. So inhalation. Within a few hours of inhaling significant amounts of ricin, the likely symptoms would be respiratory distress or difficulty breathing, fever, cough, nausea, and tightness in the chest. Heavy sweating may follow as well as fluid building up in the lungs. This would make breathing even more difficult and the skin might turn blue. Excess fluid in the lungs would be diagnosed by x-ray or by listening to the chest with a stethoscope. Finally, low blood pressure and respiratory failure may occur. And that's what leads to death. Ingestion. If someone swallows a significant amount of ricin, he or she would likely develop vomiting and diarrhea that may become bloody. And I think this is how he, yeah, because it was in his food. So severe dehydration may be the result followed by low blood pressure. Other signs or symptoms may include seizures and blood in the urine. Within several days, the person's liver, spleen, and kidneys might stop working and the person could die. Skin and eye exposure. Ricin is unlikely to be absorbed through normal skin. Contact with ricin powders or products may cause redness and pain of the skin and the eyes. However, if you touch ricin that is on your skin and then eat food with your hands or put your hands in your mouth, you may ingest some. And these symptoms 
can start to occur within four hours. So it's pretty quick. And then death from rice and poison could take place within 36 to 72 hours, depending on how you were exposed to it. And also something on that forensic files, one of Deb and Mike's friends, who was also a doctor, said that there's no way that a doctor would choose to kill themselves with ricin. Mm -hmm. She's like, no one wants to poop themselves to death. And (laughs) they know exactly what it does. So she knew that that was false immediately. Yeah, it sounds like it. Awful way. Mm-hmm. Awful way She's, to go. And she said, we're doctors. We have access to any type of medicine you could want. Why would you choose that? <laughs> yeah. Which makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, I can't believe that he did not die hearing all of that. Yeah. Um, treatment. Symptomatic rice and poisoning is treated by giving victims supportive medical care to minimize the effects. Like Dad said, there's no antidote. So you're just treating it. You're not really curing it. Um, The types of supportive medical care would depend on several factors, such as how it was affecting them or how the route by which they were poisoned. Um, Care could include helping victims breathe, giving them intravenous, how do you say that? Intravenous fluids. Intravenous intravenous fluids, yeah. And that's fluids through a needle and into a vein, giving them medications to treat conditions such as seizure and low blood pressure flushing their stomachs with activated charcoal, if and that only works if it's been very recently ingested, or washing out their eyes with water if their eyes are irritated. Mm. Ew. Keep mm. me far away from castor beans. Yeah, not a good way to go. So why is castor oil a thing? I don't know. Do we eat that? Yeah, you can. Uh, yeah, castor oil was... Uh, what people would take for upset stomachs back in the day. I've never had That's it. That's ironic. But evidently it tastes awful because back in the old cartoons I used to watch, like Our Gang and Three Stooges and things like that, they'd give a kid castor oil and you'd see their face pucker up. I think it's also a laxative. I think so. so I think they said that in the yeah. forensic file. So I don't know where it comes from, but yeah. Well, I'll have to look that up just for my own peace of mind. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, this case has been in the media, like Dad said, it was all over the news. It's it's been all over the news multiple times. Um, but if you want to learn more, you can YouTube that Forensic Files episode. That's how I watched it. It the episode is called Ultimate Betrayal. There's also a documentary series called Deadly Women. I meant to look up what it was on, but I forgot. So it's called Deadly Women, and there was an episode in 2020 that this case was featured on, and it was about women who have killed their children. And in March of this year, Lifetime made a movie called A House on Fire, and that was based off of Anne Rule's true crime book that she wrote. And speaking of that book, it is called Bitter Harvest, A Woman's Fury, A Mother's Sacrifice. And it was a New York Times bestseller. But one reviewer, at least one reviewer, felt that Rule failed to discuss Green's motivation for the crimes, and she portrayed Green too unsympathetically and Farrar too sympathetically. Yeah, I read that. And uh, Deborah Green actually wrote Ann Rule and asked her to look into the case. Really? Uh, so that's how that's how Ann Rule got interested in it. She got a letter from Deborah Green saying, hey, help me out here. And I'm certainly she got more help than she bargained for because. Uh, Anne Rule did not 
express any sympathy for Deborah Green. None whatsoever. Well, it's hard to get sympathy when you kill your children. It really is. No matter what the... When you kill your children in a way that could be viewed as um, intentionally. So yeah. no matter what the outside circumstances are. Well, this was a good one. Yeah, it, it, it's good. And uh, but again, as always, we, we can't forget. The victims. two young lives mm -hmm. who, who who knows what they would have accomplished in this world uh, just because two adults couldn't get along. Two adults who were supposed to protect them. With didn't, everything didn't. didn't. Yeah. What do we have next week? Oh, I know what we have. It's uh, your book. Ah, yes. The Tell us about that. Billionaire's Vinegar. So we are moving away from murder for a little bit to an international and uh, centuries-wide fraud. Ooh. Involving wine. Our favorite. Yes. Did uh, did Thomas Jefferson actually own some old wine that was auctioned off over 200 years after his death? Or was it fraud? Mm. We will see next week. Ooh, I'm excited. Well, thank you all for listening. We are so happy to be back for season three. And uh, good news. I'm also, every week this season, I'm going to be posting our recording to YouTube. I'm going to make a YouTube channel. By now, it'll be up, obviously. So if you'd rather listen to us on YouTube, that will be available this season. And uh, thank you all, and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Join our VIP Facebook group, Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP, to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive video content. Follow us on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There's a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Don Bailey at pretendmachine.com. Thank you to Alex Joaquim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art.